Um, it's very interesting to be preaching this message at a, at a youth-led service. In fact, it seems quite poignant um, when I think about it. And what I want to do before I go any further is encourage all of you who have taken part. What you are doing is incredibly important. It doesn't matter that you are the age you are. Um, if you love Jesus and you serve him and you read his word and you bless the church, it doesn't matter whether you need to stand on a box or not. And actually, what you've done this evening has been a real blessing already, I know. Because what we can actually do is we can, we can see your example and see that actually you're growing. And that's really good. So thank you. Um, it's been a real encouragement already. In fact, I think I could just leave it there and just go sit back down. I better not, though. Um, friends, I want to put to you that every church is either one generation away from spiritual blessing and fruitfulness or one generation away from spiritual drought. Um, and the, the letter that we read earlier, that was read so well to us, deals with this issue that every church is in a constant struggle, a constant process of renewing itself. You know, as Christians, we grow in grace, we grow in the knowledge of God, we hopefully grow in fruitfulness, but eventually we won't be here anymore. Eventually we will be called home. And that matter of what happens when that happens is really important for a church. And we read the letter that John wrote, uh, the third letter that John wrote just now. And the letter is actually written at a time of, I won't say crisis, but a time of change for the church. And it's written at a time where generations are changing. Now, it's the third letter of its type. Um, and John has written two previous letters that deal with this idea of generation change. Now, before we go any further, I really want to just remind us of who John is. Church history would certainly indicate, and the writing style of these letters would indicate that John, the writer of this letter, is the same writer who wrote John's Gospel and who wrote Revelation. The style is very, very similar, and there's no reason to think that there was anybody else. So John wrote these letters, um, but that means that the letter we're about to read is, writ is written by a first-generation Christian, a Christian who literally walked the earth with Jesus. And that's really special because that means that the way in which John goes about things, hopefully, should not be too dissimilar to the way in which Christ went about things. And so when we think about new generations in the church, we have to realise that John was writing to some churches in a place called Ephesus. And he was writing to a church of what were second generation Christians. The church had been formed and we actually have a letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. Uh, and the church had been going for some little time at this point, but it was now at the stage where a lot of those first generation Christians who had been around when Christianity first exploded were getting old. Some of them had passed away already. And 
John, who was probably one of the one of the younger disciples, is getting to perhaps into part of his old age at this point. He's not. Uh, this isn't the last we hear of John. The last we hear of John is Revelation, which he writes when he's in prison on the island of Patmos, but um, in a well in a in a work colony. Um, but he's getting to the point where he realizes that it falls to him to make sure that the next generation of Christians in Ephesus are brought up the right way. And it falls to us, doesn't it, to make sure that the next generation of Christians at Exmouth Chapel, at Great Parks Chapel, are brought up the right way. And so the previous two letters are concerned with some problems that they're having at this transition point. Because there are some people who haven't heard the gospel properly at this point, And they are twisting it or adding to it or subtracting from it. They're actually teaching that Jesus is important, but not the most important. Uh, the letter of 1 John we've been going through as a church at Exmouth Chapel. And it deals with issues like false teaching. It deals with issues like false Christians. Christians who say they're Christians, but actually they don't have any fruit of being Christians. They don't behave like Christians. And John makes a really clear point that Christians, people who are saved by grace, behave like Christians who are saved saved by grace. And so that comes out in this passage. So this is a letter to second second generation Christians. It's also a letter to a house church. You see... There wasn't one big church in Ephesus. There were lots of little churches. They met in people's homes. And it's written to a group of believers meeting in someone's home. And it's written to a real church. In other words, not a perfect church. Have you ever been to a perfect church? Where, you know, the the preacher always kept to time. Where the worship was just your style where they served just the right coffee out the hatch. And they had those biscuits that have the really nice hard chocolatey bit on the top, but still a little bit, you know, the balsam choco Leibniz, those ones. Yeah, the perfect church. No, we haven't, because it doesn't exist. And neither did it exist in Bible times. And so we can see from the way that John talks to this house church that actually he's dealing with an imperfect church. But it's really interesting how he does. And I want to just frame my thoughts this evening around the three people that he refers to in his letter and their response to him. The first thing that I want to pull out is this theme that we have throughout. I don't know if you have ever read this and noticed the amount of times in, in, in 14 verses that John talks about truth. And if we pick up, we read to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. That you continue to walk it, sorry, that your faithfulness in the, to the truth, you continue to walk in it. You are walking in the truth. You're together for the truth. We read on that, you're te- that Demetrius has a testimony even by the truth itself. We read that our testimony is true. He is absolutely obsessed that these people are rooted in the truth. And actually, if we were to go back and read 1 John and 2 John, you'd find the same thing. The same pattern. To John, the most important thing for this house church in its growth is the truth. And so what what do we mean by this truth? Well, actually, let's turn to John's gospel. Let's see what he actually 
what his first reference to the truth was. If we turn to John chapter 1, you don't necessarily have to, but John 14, sorry, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The first thing that we need to understand is the truth he's referring to is Christ. And actually in his earlier letters, what he does is he makes a massive deal that Christians need Jesus plus nothing. That Christ is the truth. And Christ is referred to in John chapter 1 as the word as well. He's the source of truth. He's where we get our truth from. So what he's saying is, believers in Ephesus, Christ truly is the son of God. He truly existed, because bear in mind, these are second generation, not first generation. They wouldn't have heard the news that was going around the area through traders and merchants and things. He really did exist. He really was God. And he really still is God. And we need to listen to, to his teachings. If we move on just a little bit, John makes sure that he records Jesus saying that actually he is the way, the truth and the life. We find that in John chapter 14, that he is the way, the truth and the life. And actually, when we finish John's gospel, when John writes the story of Jesus Christ, he says the purpose of this in in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31 this was written that you may believe that jesus is the messiah the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name you know truth and belief are very closely tied up if you know something is true you'd be really daft not to believe it wouldn't you and so the truth that john is referring to and i don't want to go into it any further than that because we don't need to is that actually they are rooted in the truth of the gospel they're also when we when we turn to John's first letter, they're also rooted in the idea that we must be truthful about where we stand with God. In the first chapter of John's first letter, we read that actually if we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That actually, as Christians, if we're going to succeed, if we are going to see blessing in our churches, it begins with being truthful about our state. That actually there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't act honestly with God. We have times in our Christian walk where actually we find that hard. But actually a true Christian will grapple with this idea of truth and where we stand. And we will allow ourselves to be shaped by the truth of who Jesus is. We'll read his word and we will allow Jesus and his example to shape us. And so he makes that clear time and again in this letter that if this church in Ephesus is going to succeed, they need to listen to the truth and they need to believe it for themselves. The second point, though, is that John takes time to bring these believers on. And so let's just take a few moments to think about John's relationship to Gaius. Now, first of all, we know that actually... John, from the way he speaks, is no stranger to Gaius. Okay? When we read it, we, talk, we hear in verse 2 that Gaius comes to him and... Sorry, that John comes to Gaius and he speaks to him as dear friend. Dear friend. And he actually begins with 
something that's, that we can really relate to. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may, may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. You know, those of you in work, if you were to compare an email you got from your boss to an email you got from your friend or a family member, I bet you there's one difference you'll find. If it's, a friend, if it's an email from your friend or a letter from your friend, it's probably going to begin something along the lines of, I hope you're doing well. Even if your friend wants something, they normally start with that, don't they? Your boss doesn't really do that because the relationship is different. But the relationship that John has is one of friendship, of close friendship, of a bond. You know, John has taken time at some point in his pastoring of the Ephesus churches to get to know Gaius. And that, that close mentoring, that close friendship and relationship, that family relationship is so key to the success of the churches. Why is John doing that? Because that's the way that Jesus related to him and mentored him. That's how Jesus dealt with him. Jesus told his disciples, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you friends. And if we want our church to succeed and grow, we need to mentor and bring on the next generation, not as a youth group, dare I say it, but as friends. One of the dangers that I've seen and experienced myself in church is that youth groups are often seen as separate from the church. Oh, the youth group are doing that. Now, it doesn't appear to be that way here. I've loved my time here. But actually, churches that really succeed are ones where the young people are in church and feel part of church. You know, I heard a really great comment on why people leave church when they go off to university. And the point of the comment was, it's because they've never been in it. So often, we don't treat young people as fellow workers in Christ, even if they're saved. We treat them as part of the youth group, and that we separate them from our churches. And we don't bring them in. And when they get to 18, they've never been in church. It's not that they've left, they've just never been there. But John hasn't made that mistake. You get the impression that John has met Gaius perhaps when he's younger, that they've spent time together. And John has built this relationship, not because he's come to Gaius and said, Gaius, I'm, uh, I'm John. You know, John, the disciple, the man who walked with Jesus, the man who had apostolic gifts bestowed on him at Pentecost. You know me. Have you read my book? No, he's taken time to build the relationship and he's taken time to affirm the relationship. You know, when I think back on mentors that I've had that have brought me on in the faith, they are not the ones that have tried to just impart lots of knowledge to me. They're the ones that have come to me and built me up. There's a man who I used to work on a lot of camps with, a guy called Dave Kelso. He may be known to some of you, he may not be. He's originally from Florida in America. He's a great preacher, and I've learned a lot from that. But actually, it is the fact I've learned from him because he has taken time to see what I'm doing, to take an interest in what I'm doing, 
and when I'm doing something right to tell me that I'm doing something right. And we read here in verse 3 that John is doing that exact same thing. It gives me great joy when some believers came and te- or gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that reference, my children, is really important. That's the kind of closeness, that's the kind of level of care that John takes over his brother in Christ, who's a bit younger than him. He views him as a spiritual child. You know, this morning we talked about singleness and how God can use it. There are many people that I know that haven't got children, but they have an awful lot of spiritual children. And John was one of those. May I challenge us? Who is it that we are building up and affirming in our church? And we can't just say, it's the youth group, or it's the seekers. It can't be a group of people. It's a person. It might be more than one person. But who is it that you are pouring your life into? We need to move on, though. And we read that actually John is writing with a purpose. He's writing with a purpose that he needs to invigorate this church. There is something wrong with it. And it's a problem of hospitality. Now, this is the point, actually, where it's really nice when we read scripture and it affirms what we're doing. I spent a lovely afternoon um, at the Bartlett's today. It was thank, thank you for having us. It was wonderful hospitality. And hospitality is so strongly affirmed here. Across the, across the Bible, it's seen as a gift, something you can even be gifted for. But just a reminder that when we see gifts in the Bible, it doesn't mean that if we're not gifted for it, we shouldn't do it. Evangelism, for example, we see gifted evangelists, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't be responsible for telling people about Jesus. Basically, what John is saying is that there are some believers who are going around as missionaries in this second generation and they're going around preaching the gospel but they're doing it in such a way that when they preach to an area that they refer to as a pagan area when they preach to that area they are determined not to take anything from them not to have an impact on them not to put any strain on the people they're preaching to you see by doing that it means that they are not indebted to them and they can preach the truth The problem is those people are human beings and they need feeding and watering and looking after. And so those people were looking at the time to be looked after by the local churches. And it's something we still see today. You know, when when you're a visiting preacher somewhere, you're looked after by people in the fellowship. It's something that's important. And John is is saying to to, to Gaius... You've been faithful in doing this so far, but there are some more people coming your way and I need you to look after them. You see, John's mentoring and building up of Gaius has actually been so successful that he can trust him. Gaius is probably now relatively mature. He's certainly someone of influence in the church. Otherwise, he wouldn't be John wouldn't be writing to him to make this happen. Um. And he says this is really key. This hospitality of other Christians is really key so that it allows us to work together in the truth. The hospitality, when we, when we talk about giftings in the Bible, hospitality almost is sidelined sometimes. We think about, oh, those who are going to be preachers and evangelists. 
those who are going to teach, those who are going to be missionaries, these are those who are going to be gifted for things that are a bit spectacular. And then we have, oh, some people are going to be gifted for hospitality. But John reminds us here that that hospitality is what allows people to work together for the gospel. You, say, you know, at some point when the rubber hits the road, building the church is very, very practical. That people need feeding. People need looking after. People need somewhere to spend time. You know, actually, I'm really blessed that my church has a heavy emphasis on that. You know, the scripture is not all just here. It is not just here to provide a spiritual kick when we do something wrong. It's also there, as John is doing, to affirm what we're doing right. Isn't it a great feeling when we read the word and you go, actually, my my church is doing that. And there's nothing wrong with seeing that. You know, if you're moving in the right direction, the word is there to affirm that you are. How often we read, the, we read the Bible expecting it to criticize us and we miss the fact that sometimes it affirms what we are doing well. And sometimes those things peter out because we don't think they mean anything. So that's, that's Gaius. But let's move on because the problem that John has is that he's writing to Gaius because he's actually written another letter that we don't have access to. Technically, 3 John is actually 4 John. Now, obviously, this previous letter wasn't included in the canon of Scripture, probably for good reason, or certainly for good reason. But John has written a previous letter to another man, another man that he knows, again, personally. But there has been a massive difference in the reaction of this other man. This other man is called uh, Diotrephes, and we are told very quickly that he loves to be first. And Diotrephes is doing the opposite of what John is asking Gaius to do. See, there are Christian missionaries who are looking for hospitality, looking to be taken care of, and he is telling them to take a hike. Now, we're told that actually he loves to be first, and it would appear that he is in a position of responsibility. He actually, we're told that he doesn't welcome other believers who come, And he puts them out of the church. Now, that's really interesting that he does that. And I reckon there are two reasons. The first reason is actually found in the other two letters. John's previous letter and the one before that are all about avoiding false teaching. There are things being taught among Christians that just are not glorifying to God. And John is saying, you must stop this and you must separate yourself from it. And this fear of false teaching sometimes led to isolationism. So the idea that we're going to batten down the hatches and we're just going to do our church here the way that we want to and we don't want outside influence. Sometimes we can end up being caused to act wrongly for what may have even begun as a right reason. But Diotrephes has decided that actually he doesn't want these other missionaries. He's probably had these other false teachers who are walking around Ephesus knocking on the door too. And he's decided to shut the door on everybody. But there's another reason, and John gives that. And it is this. John in verse 11 tells us, 
Dear friend, and he's writing to Gaius again, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. And this leads me to wonder whether Diotrephes is a second generation Christian who's just second generation. But he's got into the position he's in because he's been around for a long time. But that nobody has been willing to say, actually, where's his fruit? Is he doing good? Is he acting with grace? Does he look more like Jesus? And he's not welcoming. And he's isolationist. And he's quick to put aside even the people who are telling the truth. And it could be because of his comfort zone. He's not willing to let people into his church who might challenge him. Whatever the reason, and we don't really know, we see that John has made an attempt to reach out to him. Now, that's very interesting because John doesn't seem to treat him as a false teacher. In the previous two letters, John is absolutely scathing about false teachers. He calls them the Antichrist. That's how he uses incredibly strong terms, but he doesn't use that about Diotrephes. And I wonder whether it is in John's mind, and this is speculation, that that he knows Diotrephes and he knows that actually he has been overcome by pride. He's been overcome by the desire to stay in his comfort zone. And actually, John is going to come and talk to this church and he's going to raise it. What he's not saying is what you need to do is arrange a mob to get rid of Diotrephes. He hasn't said that. But Diotrephes is a challenge to us. That sometimes we can, in an effort to do things the way that we think they should be done, we can end up acting in the exactly, exact opposite way to the way in which Christ wants us to go. Diotrephes should be a spiritual health check for anyone in any position of leadership. Because there's another problem. There is a problem that actually Diotrephes is in a position of responsibility and he is in a position where he is on a pedestal. And what the Bible tells us is that actually leaders are doubly responsible for their witness because they are in a position of authority over others. Are you in a position of leadership? And by that I don't mean are you an elder of this church? I might mean that, but I mean, are you leading anything? Are you leading a group study? Are you leading part of the youth group, a class? Are you just older than some of the other people in the youth group? And do they look up to you? Because the problem is, Diotrephes is probably affecting the other people in the church. There was a a quote by... Jackie Hill Perry, who's a Christian poet, and she said this, and it really got to me. We can't model what we don't believe. Your children, your mentees, your disciples, your youth group are learning from you, even if you don't know it. What is Diotrephes' group or house church learning? Certainly not what they should be. And it is simply because he has put his own desires 
and his own preconceptions and his own judgment ahead of what John calls the truth. Why are we doing what we are doing? Why are we leading the people that we lead in the way that we are? Is it that we found it in this book? Or is it that it seemed like a good idea? You see, Diotrephes is doing the opposite of John. John is behaving as a friend and a mentor. Diotrephes is behaving as a manager. Are you a mentor or a manager? A manager has no place in the Christian church. You might be good at managing things, and that's not the same thing. You might be good at organization, and I'm not taking a hit at that. But managing people is not what we do. It's not the business we're in. As we close, I want to look at the final person that is mentioned. And this man is called Demetrius. Let's read what is said about him. Demetrius is very well spoken of by everyone, even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is a young believer, we think. He is someone that is coming on in the faith. But why is it that John needs to affirm him, explain to Gaius that he has a good testimony? Surely Gaius knows that. Apart from it's probable that Gaius has never met him. You see, actually, some commentators, I think, probably get it right when they suggest that actually Demetrius might have been the one delivering the letter. That John has young men alongside him and he's using them for the growth of the kingdom. But he's using the ones that are actually rooted in the truth. Now, we can see that Demetrius is rooted in the truth. It has, he has a testimony by the truth itself. What it's saying is, his testimony is that he is more like Jesus than he was last week. That people can see more of Jesus in him than they used to. That's what John is saying here. He's well spoken of by everyone. Who's everyone? It's not actually necessarily everyone that he meets, but everyone in the church. He has a good testimony with them. Whoever you are in this church, do you have a good testimony in this church? Are you well spoken of by everyone? Now, sometimes, and I know this from being an elder in my own church, you are not always seen in a good light by everybody. Sometimes you have to make decisions that people don't agree with, but if you stand on scripture, then you can do it properly. But just in your general dealings, the way in which you interact with people in church. And this is mu as much for the youngest of us as the oldest of us. What do people come away saying? Because to John, it's really important. It's not just politeness and it's not just suggesting they've had a good upbringing. It's suggesting that they're a Christian. That, they're a, that actually their commitment, their confession of faith has meant something to them and is changing them. And actually, if we were to go into more depth, we could see that actually if Demetrius is the one that's delivered the letter, Demetrius is also showing that he will do anything for the truth. He's showing that he is willing to do the donkey work. 
It's not being funny, but there was no postal service. When you wanted to send a letter back in those days, you had to convince someone to take it. And when John wrote his letter, he said, um, Demetrius, I'm, I'm writing this letter. Would you mind taking it to this particular house church, to this man I know? He's somewhere in the city. You need to, this is where you need to go. So it's not him going and delivering it in the letterbox. It's him going there. You see, John might not even be in Ephesus at this time. We don't know. But Demetrius is willing to do a very unglamorous job. We know that he probably has to have, tra- he's traveled it far enough that he's going to spend some time with them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have commended him. He's not just nipped home. He's probably made a journey of days. But this young man is willing to do it because Jesus is working in his life. The Holy Spirit is changing him. And actually, he has the humility to say, I haven't written the letter. It's not me. But I'll deliver it because I know it's important. You know, there's two sides to this. One, there's the willingness of Demetrius to go do the donkey work. To be the postman. But there's also the willingness of John to trust him with it. I know that God has been able to use me and change me because there were Christians in my church that dropped me in it and got me to take some responsibility. I know that actually what you're doing here and running this service and having people up here and reading and leading is going to make a difference because that was me. There's a chap called Gerald Perkins. He's still in my church. He's getting on a bit now. But Sunday after Sunday, I would find Gerald stood at the door of the church. Matt, can you do a reading for me? Matt, can you do family prayers? Matt, you wouldn't mind just praying at the start of the service. You know, if I'd got any of those things wrong, I'd have made a fool out of myself at the front. And it would have probably derailed the service a little bit. They were positions of responsibility that I could handle. They were real things that I was being asked to do. At the moment in my church, there is a a lad, and I will say this because he's not here and I don't want to give him a big head, called Jared. He was saved a year or so ago, a couple of years now, actually. Um, And I know that if I need him to do something in the church and I ask him to do it, he's willing to do it. And I know that that is because God is changing him. Jared, do you want to do this reading? Jared, would you mind helping me with this sketch that we're using on Easter Sunday, the day before? That probably wasn't all that fair. But, uh, yes. Jared, will you give your testimony to the youth group? Yeah, I will. These are positions of responsibility. The thing is, what, what I see is that as we give him more responsibility, he grows more. I'll leave it there on Demetrius. And as we close, I'll just remind you what John reminds us. I have much to write to you. He could say, I have much to say to you, but I don't want to do it with pen and ink. I'll see you soon, and we'll talk face to face. John closes with the reminder that this is all about relationship. That you can't do mentoring and church from a distance by an email. He wrote the letter that was inspired scripture, but he still said, I've got things that I need to talk to you about. That's how we're going to change our churches. That is how we are going to make sure that we are a generation 
away from spiritual blessing and fruitfulness and not a generation away from spiritual drought. Let's pray. Our loving Father God, I thank you for church. I thank you that you put us in churches and churches are a family, a close-knit one. And Lord, you know that we are not a perfect family, that we don't always fit together the right way. We don't always do what we should, but that you are working in us. And Lord God, we pray for this next generation. We pray for every generation in our church that it would be given a job to do and that we would fulfill it. And I pray that in the way in which we love each other and interact with each other and form bonds with one another, that you would bless our churches. That, Lord, you would put the truth in our hearts and that we would never be guilty of teaching anything that we don't believe. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.